0: Welcome to the very first episode of the Banner of Truth magazine podcast. The magazine was first published in 1955 and with over 3,500 featured articles and excerpts, it is a rich repository of Christian teaching on many and varied themes. Now from the beginning of 2024, the Banner of Truth will be making select content from the magazine available via a new podcast format. Here to introduce the magazine and new podcast to us is the Banner of Truth General Manager, John Rawlinson. John, could you tell us how the magazine got started?
1: So the history of the magazine dates back to 1955 and to Oxford in England. And in March of that year, Ian Murray paid a visit to the Reverend Sidney Norton, who was the minister of St John's Church in Summertown, which is a northern suburb, Of Oxford and that visit led to Ian joining Sydney Norton as his assistant in the church. Oxford if you visit today in many ways is very different to what it was back in 1955 but also there are a lot of similarities because today if you visit Oxford you can see the historical landmarks from church history that were there in the 1950s. You could see the place where John Owen became the vice chancellor of the university in 1652. You could see the memorials to Ridley and Latimer, uh, the reformers who were put to death uh, and burned at the stake in Oxford. Oxford is the place where Whitfield was a servitor in Pembroke College. Oxford is the place where the Bodleian Library is. Uh, a library that contains huge numbers of manuscripts dating back hundreds of years, and you're able to go and view and to handle things that were written by men of old. Ian Murray was to say that experience proves, and I quote, experience proves that some men can pass through Oxford without being inspired one way or the other by its history. Yet how that is possible has to be something of a mystery, he writes. Well, clearly Ian was inspired by the history that he came face to face with as he travelled around Oxford and as he worked in Oxford. But it wasn't just history that concerned Ian. And as Ian Murray talked with Sidney Norton, there was a shared concern for the state of the church at that time in Britain uh, that became very apparent. Sidney Norton uh, lived on Bambury Road and were told that at the bottom of the garden of the house in which he lived, there was a wooden summer house. And it was there that during the summer of 1955, Ian Murray and Sidney Norton would often meet, and they would meet to study and to talk and to pray. And it's possible that that was the place where the idea of a magazine was born. Uh, and the idea of the magazine was to address some of the issues in the church, to, to look at re-establishing some of the truths that it would seem at that point in the church in the UK had largely been lost and, and very little heard about. Ian was to write in 1961 that, quote, "...we have diluted the gospel by turning it into a man-centred message, and we have ceased to make the scriptures the rule of all our practice." In short, before everything else, we need to clear out of our lives and out of our pulpits and out of our churches all the things that have caused God to depart from us. Whilst that was written in 1961, that was very much the concern of Ian Murray and Sidney Norton in 1955 that then led to the creation of the magazine. A gift of £40 pounds was sent to the church by somebody who again was concerned with, with the state of the church. And that gift was enough to, to set in motion the creation of the Ray first magazine. So by mid-1955, the first issue was put together. Ian Murray put together the majority of the content for the first magazine, and he called it the Gospel Banner. And he put on the front of the magazine the verse from Psalm 60, verse 3, and that says, "'Thou hast showed thy people hard things.'" Thou has made us to drink the wine of astonishment. Having put the material together, Ian met with Sidney Norton and they discussed the magazine and what was there. And he wanted two changes. On the whole, he was happy with the main content, but he wanted two changes. And the first one was the title. He wants to change the title from the Gospel Banner to the Banner of Truth. And then the second change he wanted was to add in verse 4 from Psalm 16. That reads, Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. And of course, those that know the banner of truth will know that that is very much, if, if we can call it such, that is very much our motto text. So having agreed the content of the first magazine, well, the next thing to do was to find a printer for it. And Ian Murray tells us that he found a printer in Eastbourne, in England, and he was a Christian printer. But as they were to discover, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was the most efficient printer. And it would seem that there was some frustration in in actually getting the first edition printed. So much so that with some of the delays that are taking place, a telegram appears to have been sent to him. And that telegram included the words within it. The king's business requireth haste. Well, whether the haste happened or not, the first edition of the magazine uh, came out in September 1955. With that first edition of the magazine, there was no promise of a second edition. But a second edition was to follow because a further gift was received that enabled the next edition to be put together so that in February 1956... Edition number two of the Banner of Truth magazine was published. Shortly after that second edition, there was another significant event that took place in the life of Ian Murray. For uh, the 1st of July of 1956 was his last Sunday in Oxford as assistant to Sidney Norton. And shortly after that, Ian was to move to London to become the assistant to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel. In many ways, it was probably a sad parting from Oxford. Ian Murray was to leave his position with Sidney Norton, a man who'd become a very close friend. And Ian and his wife were to leave what was their first married home in the city of Oxford, uh, the house that had the top floor study where the first Banner magazine had been prepared. But they moved to London, and in London they found further encouragements to continue the magazine worked. And so we find over the next few years, the magazine was periodically published and on into the early 1960s. By the time you get to late 1965, it had become a bi-monthly magazine. And then finally in 1968, it became a monthly magazine. I would imagine that if you could go back to 1955 and talk to Ian Murray and Sidney Norton as they prepared that first magazine, they would have no imagination, no thought that what, 68 years later, that magazine had become a monthly magazine being published by the Banner of
0: Truth Trust. That's really helpful and some fascinating background on the magazine. Uh, So John, what can readers expect to find if they pick up the magazine today? Well,
1: today the magazine is a 32-page magazine, that's the typical format of it, and within the magazine you'll normally find something like eight articles, each one being somewhere between two and four pages in length. The articles cover a range of different subjects, so you might have an article that is uh, biography, you might have an article that is church history. It might be an article covering a theological topic or perhaps it's something dealing with an aspect of church life or an aspect of Christian life. So there've been articles, for instance, to do with worship and there've been articles to do with the use of the Lord's day and there are articles over the years that have been looking at different characters from church history, whether that be Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards or many others that have been covered over the years. It's a magazine that you could pick up and put down it's not something you need to read all in one go. So the articles being fairly short, you could pick the magazine up one day, read an article, put it down, come back to it the next day and read another one. I suppose if you ask the question, who who is the typical reader? Well, there probably isn't a typical reader as such. It's designed for lots of different people to be able to read. So it could be ministers. It could be uh, people in the pew. Uh, it could be younger people. It could be older people. Uh, It's not a technical theological journal. It's a a, a magazine that we're looking to have uh, edifying and spiritually helpful articles in, things that would help people in their Christian lives. Sometimes there might be articles that are more directed to a particular part of the, the readership. So we may have an article, for instance, on preaching, perhaps how you prepare for preaching. And clearly that's directed to those who preach, so that would be more applicable to ministers. But by and large, well, the, the magazine has content in it month by month that is there for everybody uh, and would be beneficial to anybody to read.
0: Uh, and finally, what is the vision for the magazine podcast uh, for making this material available in a new format?
1: So as we've been thinking about the history of the magazine, uh, we, you know, we have content that goes back to 1955, so the 68 years of content of magazine articles. And the idea really with the podcast is to, to bring to life material that potentially could be lost on the shelf of history. So the idea would be to read an article from the current magazine uh, and also to choose articles from past magazines. Uh, and to read those. Uh, It'll give those articles in particular a new lease of life for the modern day listener. Uh, It's not going to be a a long podcast, so each uh, edition of the podcast will not be hours and hours of listening. Uh, And so it means that you could perhaps listen to something like this, uh, maybe on your way to work, uh, maybe when you're out taking a walk, or perhaps uh, taking a drive somewhere. So The other thing that many people who are listening to this podcast will know is that the Banner of Truth is a publisher of books. And again, one of the things that we'll seek to do as we read a magazine article is to perhaps link to that article Uh, some of our books that uh, are uh, complementary maybe to the subject of the article. So we might have an introduction to somebody uh, that's perhaps a biographical introduction, and then we might tell you, well, we have a book about that person, and we might even read uh, an excerpt from one of our books to complement the magazine article. So we're looking to have something that is uh, a variety of audio content that will be of interest to different people. We want to encourage people, we want to edify people. We've got a huge amount of written content and dating back many years from the magazine and we're looking to to give new lease of life to that content in a new audio format for people to enjoy and to benefit from. Obviously one of the benefits of a podcast is that it goes all over the world and You know, we're sitting here recording this podcast in our headquarter offices in Edinburgh, in Scotland, uh, but there are no borders for a podcast. You know, people could be listening to the podcast in all corners of the world, whether it be the other side of the world from us in Australia, whether it be North America, whether it be parts of Africa or India or parts of Asia, South America. There's really no limit to where a podcast can reach. And again, that's one of the things that we want to do. We were hoping to. Uh, make valuable material uh, more available and accessible to a wide audience of people. Uh, Of course, it's possible there are people who are going to listen to the podcast who've never heard of the magazine. Um, They perhaps never even have heard of the Banner of Truth. They perhaps don't even know that the Banner of Truth publishes books. And so again, with the podcast, one of our hopes is that there would be a new audience for the material that we've got, Uh, a new audience that will listen to what we have, will appreciate what they're hearing. Maybe they'll want to pick up some of the books that we produce. Maybe they'd like to subscribe monthly to the magazine. Uh, that's not the the goal of the podcast to such, to, to gain subscribers, but obviously if people want more content uh, than we're providing and they want that month by month, then that is an option for people. They can subscribe to the magazine. But it's it's a format that we believe will be helpful to people just give a new lease of life to the material that we've got, uh, and perhaps uh, we'll reach a completely new audience uh, beyond what the magazine and our books currently reach.
0: Thanks there to John Rawlinson for an insight into the history of the magazine and the direction of the magazine podcast. As we launch out then, let's go back to September 1955, to the very first issue of the magazine, And let's read the editorial we've already discussed by Ian Murray. Dear reader, we are living in the midst of a dying nation. Throughout this century, successive partial judgments, wars and bloodshed, testimonies of the displeasure of God have fallen upon us. These providential warnings have gone unheeded. The land abounds in sin. God is against us and at any time may pronounce that final, fatal sentence. I will not again pass by them any more. Partial judgments unregarded ever terminate in total ruin. Amos chapter 7. The Lord has said, Shall not a land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth therein? Yet such is our desolate state that there is no trembling at God's word, no mourning, no repentance, but rather, like a dying man, With eyes dim and senses decayed, our poor country is unable to see or hear what God is plainly declaring against us. Blindness, apathy, and false security are always the marks of a nation not far from judgment, as it was with Israel of old. Gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. So it is with us. It is true that some appear to feel the seriousness of our days, that the issue at stake is nothing less than our national survival, but how can they provide a remedy who are not even aware of the cause of our present condition? Various designs and schemes are continually brought forward. Vain desires and hopes are expressed, but they are all doomed because the mind of God who smites us is not inquired after. The true cause of all our troubles and dangers, with the only remedy for them, is utterly neglected. The providences of God, the manner in which he is ordering the events of our days, will only be understood by them that know and fear him. It is to such readers that we now send this out, praying that the Lord will cause it to fall in your path. God's people today are a scattered remnant. Thou hast showed thy people hard things. We need rallying to a banner, the banner of truth. We are in an evil day. Only those who have their loins girt about with truth shall be able to withstand. God values nothing in a nation apart from his church, for only regenerate people can rightly glorify God. And those that glorify him not are useless dross. They render God no revenue of praise. God no longer values a professing church where his truth is not acknowledged, for God cannot be glorified apart from a knowledge of the truth. Therefore, when the church in a nation departs from the truth, God has no longer any cause to keep that nation in being. It was the fall of truth in the church in Israel that brought the overthrow of the whole land. God tells us so in Hosea 4. Again, when Jerusalem rejected the truth in the time of Christ, there was nothing left for them but to be given over to the sword, as they were in 70 AD. To possess the truth of God is a nation's greatest privilege and honor. The strength and security of a land lies not in its arms, but in its acknowledgement of the truth of God. To such a land, God says, I will contend with him that contendeth with thee. But when God's truth, the gospel, departs, all other blessings depart with it. His truth is a land's greatest mercy, and therefore the removal of it must be the greatest misery. As an old writer, Stephen Charnock, says, When the gospel of peace removes, Eternal peace goes with it, temporal peace flies after it, and whatsoever is safe, profitable, prosperous, takes wings and departs also. God hath no other intention in the removing of the truth and unchurching a nation, but the utter ruin and destruction of that nation. Other judgments may be medicinal, this is killing. The torments of hell are not inflicted for the conversion of the damned, nor is the setting of the gospel sun for the conversion of a nation. In our land today, although true believers remain scattered in different denominations, the visible church as a whole has departed from the truth. They that handle the law knew me not. God is not tied to any particular visible church, and will reject those who reject his truth. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. The fall of the church is being followed of necessity by the fall of the nation, and there is but one hope, but one remedy. That is, that before the day of God's patience becomes the day of his wrath, he will in mercy revive his truth. If a land will not glorify God by the revealed truth, the Bible, God has another manner of making his truth known and acknowledged. The Lord is known by the judgments which he executeth that is, he will pour out his wrath, and make a land feel that he wrote not in vain, The nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish, and the slain shall fall in the midst of you, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Isaiah 60 verse 12, Ezekiel 6 verse 7. There are many today who regard truth and error as matters of small consequence. If a man lives rightly, they say, It matters not much what his beliefs and opinions are. Such statements do not surprise us. Night and day are all one to a blind man. Truth and error are all one to an ignorant man. None can value the truth except those who have been brought to know it. Such have a very different estimation of it. The Word of God says that man's immortal soul, his eternal state, depends upon his right knowledge of the truth. There are certain definite doctrines, and those that hold them not are already marked out in the scriptures as lost men. Error is a work of such evil consequences that God commanded the Israelites that all who should propagate it should be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Nor is God changed in his judgment in the New Testament. He threatens the church at Thyatira, which was infected with errors, I will kill her children with death. Revelation 2 verse 22. The apostles taught by the spirit of truth, held the same view of error. Paul calls down the curse of God upon all that pervert the truth. I would, he says, they were even cut off. Galatians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9, chapter 5 verse 12. Men will be questioned at the last day concerning whether they were in the faith and what truths they held. Though truth may seem a small matter now, the apostle Paul tells us that at that day, Heretics will meet the same condemnation as drunkards. Galatians 5 verse 21. Likewise, the apostle Peter calls heresies damnable heresies because he declares they bring swift damnation upon those that hold them. 2 Peter 2 verse 1. As an old servant of God rightly said, I pray you observe what an accent he lays on the damnation that comes by these corrupt doctrines. He calls it swift damnation would any make it a shorter voyage to hell than ordinary let him throw himself into this stream of corrupt doctrine and he is not likely to be long in going Unquote. "Never was there a day when plain certain decided statements of scripture or truth were more needed to guide the Lord's children we are aware that there is much apparently evangelical literature in circulation yet the majority of it is so mixed with error as to denote the absence of the work of the spirit of truth. The root of God's controversy is not laid bare. True causes and true remedies are for the most part passed over. And statements are made in such a mild and moderate fashion that we are led to doubt how much such writers are aware of the mind of God towards this present age. More serious still is the false confidence that is spreading abroad amongst professing evangelicals. This has arisen out of certain recent events and evangelistic campaigns. If numerical success was the test to apply, we should be happy. But when we consider that the Lord of hosts is not concerned with numbers, when we read in the scriptures that God loves the glory of his truth more than the souls of men, then we are ill at ease. The chief end of preaching is to declare the glory of God's grace. This truth is a sweet savor, acceptable to God, whether men receive it or reject it, whether its proclamation results in the salvation or damnation of hearers. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14 To gather as many souls as possible is obviously, on the face of Scripture, not the design of God. If it were so, why then did he hide the gospel from the world for thousands of years, revealing it only to the Israelites, while hundreds of generations of Gentiles were allowed to perish in their sins? When anything else besides the declaration of the truth of God to His glory is made the foundation of evangelism, it is a false foundation. The evangelism of the past few years has been on this false foundation. Emphasis has not been upon the truth. Plain statements concerning the verbal inspiration of Scripture have been avoided. Heresies have been mildly overlooked, so that modernists, Romanists and ritualists whose soul-destroying errors have aided in the eternal undoing of thousands, have been allowed to assist and join hands in these campaigns. Such compromise leads to the very overthrow of truth. The scriptures plainly declare that none are in the way of salvation except those who hold what is now called evangelical truth. It is the only saving truth. Without it, none can be regenerate, and all unregenerate are wicked in God's sight. Those who pretend union or agreement with such men need to pay heed to God's solemn warning. He that saith unto the wicked, Thou art righteous, him shall the people curse, nations shall abhor him. That is, those shall curse and abhor, who have been led by such compromising statements into eternal fire." but there is a more serious fact which shows that any confidence in such evangelism as is now prevalent is misfounded, though we do not deny that God has in his sovereign pleasure in some cases used such preaching to the salvation of souls. Ministers are commanded to rightly divide the word of truth, that is, to preach according to the scriptures. A preacher is to say neither less nor more than the word of God. Now to speak plainly, there is a manner of preaching from the Bible that is not biblical. It is possible to preach that Christ died for sinners, and yet not preach it according to the Scriptures. An example is necessary. In the 17th century, an error arose strongly under the teaching of a man named Arminius, which became known as Arminianism. His teaching briefly was that God has provided mercy for all men in Christ— and that once a man has heard the gospel, it depends upon the free will of man whether he is saved or not. The twin principles of Arminianism are that the grace of God is universal, extending to all, and that the efficacy of that grace depends finally upon the free will of man. The success of the gospel, in their mind, depends upon the willingness of man to receive it. Some will ask, were not such opinions held before Arminius spread them? They were, but not by the true church of God. Heretics in the early centuries held similar views, but they were overthrown by the leaders God gave to the church, such as Augustine. An apostate medieval Roman church held these errors, while the true servants of God in those dark centuries, such as Wycliffe and Huss, rejected them. At the Reformation, when the pure light of God's word once more shone upon Europe— Though the Church of Rome in her Council of Trent desperately sought to defend Arminian principles, the reformers, to a man, declared against them. That any man can be saved by the exercise of his free will, they utterly repudiated. To attribute the denial of free will solely to Calvin of Geneva is a plain ignorance of facts. The spirit of truth led Luther to reject it before ever Calvin began his historic Genevan ministry. In England, already by 1538, such reformers as Lambert, who died at the stake with those glorious words on his lips, none but Christ, none but Christ, were ready to lay down their lives rather than assent to such unscriptural doctrines as man's free will in his salvation. In his trial for life, Lambert fearlessly opposed his Romanist persecutors with such words as these, concerning free will, I mean altogether as doth St. Augustine, that, of ourselves, we have no liberty nor ability to do the will of God, but are shut up and sold under sin. But such is the desolate state of the church today that Arminianism passes for the truth. It cannot be true, for truth does not change with the centuries. What the Holy Spirit has testified to be false in times past is false now. Though Arminianism may be regarded as a small matter in men's eyes, it has never been so to those whom God has instructed in his word. Those Christians who were God's instruments in bringing the Bible to us in our own language were not contending about nothing when they were ready to oppose Arminianism with their lives. What were the grounds upon which they rejected it, and upon which we must reject it today? It is to be rejected because the word of God rejects it. Arminianism strikes at the very foundation of the gospel. The scriptures show God to be eternally sufficient in himself. That which is infinite, that is God, cannot be added to. The glory and happiness of God cannot be added to. Therefore, they could not be the moving motive in his creation of man, because he needs not any glory or happiness that arises from man. God was under no necessity to create, but at perfect liberty. It was his will alone that brought this world into being. But having willed it, the end of his design was the manifestation of his glorious nature. None of God's actions, the scriptures declare, are primarily for man's sake, but for thy pleasure they are and were created. Revelation 4 verse 11. For of him and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory for ever. Amen. Romans 11, verse 36. To be ignorant of this is to be ignorant of both the beginning and the end of all the purposes of God. It was the sovereign pleasure of God alone that gave man a being, and did not leave us eternally in the womb of nothingness. Now, God retains this sovereignty in all his actions. When the angels fell, they were all immediately condemned, and none could reply unto God, What doest thou? So when man fell and became all alike corrupt and undone, the objects of the righteous wrath of God, God was under no necessity to deliver any from the consequences of sin. He would have remained eternally righteous if he had rejected all. But out of that corrupt mass, God had an election. Those whom he chose though nothing in them led him to do it, but solely according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1 verse 5 For he saith unto Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The grace of God is that free love which he bestows upon some while others are passed by in their sins. Grace is more than love. It is that sovereign favor of God cast upon some totally without any meriting cause in themselves. The elect were the objects of God's grace in eternity, when they had no existence except in the mind of God, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. These were given to Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, verse 4. And as the fall necessitated the removal of sin from the elect, Christ became responsible for removing all the consequences of the fall from those which the Father had given him. For them alone he took a human nature and died to satisfy justice. John chapter 6 verses 37 to 39, chapter 17 verses 2 and 9. They alone have the truth revealed to them. Matthew 13 verse 11. And are granted the gift of faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8. Acts 13 verse 48. The salvation of any soul depends solely upon the eternal grace of God. None are saved except those whom grace predestinated, and the end of it all, the end of all true preaching, is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Reader, reject not these things because they are not fashionable in these degenerate days. What the reformers thought worthy of sealing with their blood ought at least to be worthy of your earnest attention. We do not ask you to assent to the opinions of men, but to examine the word of God. You will then find that Arminianism overturns the very design of God. It denies God the right to be sovereign. It declares God is obliged to show mercy to all. It rejects the free grace of God and asserts that any fallen creature can decide to have grace by the exercise of his free will. That man is impotent, shut up in unbelief and fettered in sin, it overlooks. Salvation is no longer the outworking of the eternal counsel of God, but the action of man. The chief design of God, the praise of the glory of His grace, is no longer the chief design in Arminian preaching. Such teaching is a corruption of the truth. It is not what the Spirit of truth has written in the Word, and the God of truth has a controversy with any church based on such a system. Arminian principles are common to the minds of natural men, therefore believers often retain Arminian opinions for some time after their conversions. Whenever a church falls from revealed truth, it falls into Arminianism. Therefore the Apostle Paul, knowing by inspiration that the church at Ephesus would be assaulted by error, and knowing that error begins by denying the sovereignty of God, sets out in the epistle to the Ephesians those doctrines of eternal predestination and sovereign grace which are the cornerstones of the whole revelation of God. Today, one thing is certain for Britain. God will have his truth glorified, either actively by our acknowledgement of it, or passively by declaring his truth through our destruction. One hope stands between our land and ruin, the hope that he will, in mercy, revive his truth. Believer, this is the day for you to make the truth of God the object of your prayers and earnest attention. All things else will pass away. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That the Lord will bless this magazine to your soul, and that you may stand on the side of truth, is the prayer of your servants in the gospel, Sidney Norton and Ian Murray. Thank you for listening to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast. To subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats, or both, see the show notes or visit banneroftruth.org.